Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. This episode is an encore from September 2011. Our guest was Lyndon Harris, who was priest in charge of St. Paul's Chapel on Wall Street in New York City on September the 11th, 2001. Harris tells us about his experience of the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center towers and about his involvement in St. Paul's ministry to the emergency responders and workers in the grueling time after the towers fell. With me in the studio today is the Reverend Lyndon Harris. Uh, he's an Episcopal priest from originally from Gaffney. And more to the point as to why he's on the show is that he was priest in charge of St. Paul's Chapel in New York City, directly across from the World Trade Center on 9-11. And so, first of all, Father Harris, thank you for being with us today on The Journal. Well, thank you for having me. It's a delight to be here, and it's lovely to be back home. Well, let's talk a few minutes about you, and, and how did you end up getting from Gaffney, South Carolina, to being priest in charge at St. Paul's yeah. New York City? Well, that's a great question. I grew up in Gaffney. I graduated high school there in 1979. Looks like you might have played football. I did, yeah. Yeah, I okay. played football. <laughs> and uh, one of my old teammates and classmates in uh, high school is now the coach at Gaffney, and I think we're going to have a good year, sounds like. Okay. And then where'd you go to school? I went to Wofford College okay. uh, in Spartanburg and uh, worked for Millican and Company about four years as a production manager. Uh, from there, I went to... Sewanee, Tennessee, for a divinity school at the University of the South. After that, I came back to this area, uh, St. Paul's in uh, Lexington, West Columbia, and then um, to Advent Spartanburg, where I was for four and a half years. Okay, and so in the mid-90s, you left Advent, Church of the Advent, Mm -hmm. and and Spartanburg Mm -hmm. for New York City. Yes. I left Advent to uh, return to school. I always dreamed about getting my doctorate in theology and possibly teaching someday. Uh, I love the exploration of, of theology, and I really enjoyed seminary, so I thought I would move up to New York and become a doctoral candidate in theology at the General Theological Seminary up in Chelsea. Okay. And did you finish it, or did you go back to serving a congregation. I um, got all the way to that hallowed uh, uh, acronym ABD, mm-hmm. all but dissertation, but have yet to finish, unfortunately. Okay. Um, 9-11 got in the way and haven't finished it yet. Maybe I will yet finish so, it. So you were on the staff, mm-hmm. uh, technically of Trinity Wall Street, and serving St. Paul's while you were in seminary? I went to um, General Seminary in 95, and I worked for uh, a a few different churches Mm part-time while I uh, did my coursework and Mm -hmm. and my research. And then um, in 2001, April of 2001, I was invited to join the staff at Trinity Wall Street Mm -hmm. as the priest associate in charge of ministries at St. Paul's. Your priest in charge, and St. Paul's is really a chapel. It's a very small Mm -hmm. building. Is it a a true congregation or? You know, I was the first full-time priest uh, dedicated to St. Paul's Chapel in 25 years when I started in April of 2001. Uh, So the congregation had dwindled uh, significantly and mostly was uh, made up of uh, folks coming from the retirement community nearby. So on a Sunday morning, we would have maybe 20 people, and that 8 a.m. service has continued. Uh, but I was brought on board to do something called the St. Paul's Initiative. 
It was uh, an experiment uh, to create an outreach in urban evangelism and uh, congregational development, reaching out to the young folks who were moving into the downtown area at the time. Uh, Trinity already knew what the 2000 census uh, demonstrated, and that was one of the largest um, uh, young adult demographics in the city is in the financial district due to rezoning of buildings and that sort of thing. So I was brought on board and given this amazing opportunity and basically was invited to experiment with a sort of a contemporary approach to to worship. Mm-hmm. So we started a jazz mass that ran on Monday nights, mm-hmm. and um, it was doing quite well. Some nights we had as many as 200 people show up for it. How, how, let's describe the physical facility at St. Mm-hmm. Paul's. It's not a particularly large chapel. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's not small either. It's uh, You can seat about 200 people, I guess, in the nave of St. Paul's Chapel. It's um, built in 1766, um, and uh, it's Georgian style. So, It's one of the oldest church structures in the city. Yeah, it is the oldest church building in continuous use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the place where George Washington came on the day of his inauguration to give thanks for that and to pray for that. Most people forget that New York City was the first capital of the United States. That's right. Yes, indeed. And Washington was a regular worshiper at St. Paul's Chapel. Do you have a parish house and other facilities, or is it just the church itself? Just the church. There's the church and the cemetery. No parish house. Everything that happened after 9-11 happened in the church. Okay. So you're, you're, you're working, you're recruiting, mm-hmm. or at least you're bringing into the, to the church on mm-hmm. Monday night young people mm-hmm. who are attracted by con- more contemporary mm-hmm. uh, worship. Yeah. And do you li- did you live in the area? I lived in uh, Greenwich Village, about a mile and a half away. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so where were you on the morning of 9-11? Well, on the morning of 9-11, I um, arrived at my office at Trinity Place, 74 Trinity Place, uh, early. That's not at St. Paul's. That's Right. That's on There's Wall no Street. office space yeah. at St. Paul's, so my office was at Trinity's office building. Um, so I arrived there early and was preparing to go have coffee and bagels with uh, a visiting presenter who was the Archbishop of Wales at that time, who later was elevated to become Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. Mm-hmm. He was scheduled to give us a series of talks that day in the TV studio on the shape of a holy life, but he never was able to give those talks. But we found out, of course, what the shape of a holy life is like that morning. It was, it's cruciform. I was heading down to have uh, coffee and bagels with him about um, 8.30ish, something like that. Um, right about the time when the first plane hit, so I guess it would have been like 8.45. Um, we heard this loud crack, you know, downtown and then a bunch of sirens. But it's New York City. You hear sirens all the time, you know. You don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. But before long, there were um, papers blowing by our office window. And um, someone said, you know, it's like a ticker tape parade, except the edges of the papers are burned. And it became really clear to us that something had happened. We soon heard that uh, an airplane had hit the World Trade Center, one of the towers. You know, I assumed it was maybe a, a little Cessna that had veered off track, uh, you know, an awful thing, but nothing on the scale that we discovered it to be. 
soon I went up the street with the uh, director of communications, John Allen, who was a friend. We went up to see what we could do to help out. And just as we got to uh, almost to Liberty Street, the corner of Liberty and Church, the second plane hit the South Tower, and that was the eruption of the fireball, you know. And at that point, we were so close, of course, we had to run, uh, dodging debris, it felt like, running for our lives as the impact uh, sprayed glass and all kinds of things uh, out from the building. Uh, we ran into the American Stock Exchange because that was the first building that was open. Stayed there for a little while and then made it back to Trinity's office at 74 Trinity Place. And uh, when we got back, there were folks already in uh, the process of evacuating the children from the preschool at Trinity um, from the third floor uh, preschool facility to the basement because they were just thinking standard safety protocol, you know, to get them to a safer place. But about the time all the children were brought into the basement, the first tower collapsed and that massive black uh, cloud, thick as molasses, descended upon us. And now, th I'll stop because mm -hmm. that's, that is such a graphic image. The cloud, you said thick as molasses, and a southern boy would know what we're talking about. You said yeah. thick as molasses. Yeah, you could, you, could molasses. Fe you could feel it. It was not just yeah. black smoke. It was something you, you could feel. Oh, you could feel it, yeah. And okay. um, and it wasn't sweet at all. It burned our eyes. You know, We were choking. We couldn't breathe. And You're inside when this happened. We're inside, but it's coming through our air conditioning uh, ventilation system. And we're in the basement, and all this is coming in. We just don't know what to do. So um, it became clear that we needed to just take a child. We had about 60 children uh, in the uh, preschool. So um, most of us who were there took a child and we went out the back entrance of the uh, office building and just ran. We ran for our lives, running away from the towers, running toward the Staten Island Ferry, mm -hmm. thinking you know that would be the next maybe safest place. Mm -hmm. And as we were running along, uh, the second tower collapsed, and this cloud uh, was gray, and it was just ashes. And it was just like a movie, the way the cloud of ashes descended upon us, covered us. We all looked like zombies. Of course, you know, the sort of the dress code downtown at Wall Street is black. You know, well, most of us have black suits on. But they were gray and just covered in ashes. And you're carrying a young child. Yeah. I was carrying a little girl. Her name is uh, Jasmine. And, um, you know, I asked her if she was okay at one point, And she said, yeah, keep running, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, precious little girl. Um, but I was really happy to be carrying her because I, you know, I had a real live human being in my arms at a time when I didn't know if we were going to make it or not. What we discovered that day, many of us, was that um, you know we, we had to face our own deaths, our own mortality in, in a way that most of us probably hadn't done before. I hadn't certainly faced my own death in that way. And you discover a few things about yourself in that moment that maybe gives you a little energy to carry on in life. And I discovered in that moment that I wasn't afraid to die. Didn't want to die. I wanted to see my daughter grow old and, and have grandchildren and all that. But I knew that, you know, 
somehow in God's mercy, even this would be redeemed. And um, so we're running. We make it to the Staten Island Ferry Terminal. Um, and there again, no one has any idea what's going on or what we could do or what we should do. Um, because these children them. probably come from all over the city, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and so how do you get to get them home or contact mother and daddy? Because the phones are all going crazy, right? One of the brilliant things that happened is that the director of the school, the head of the school, was able to call in and change the uh, message on the uh, answering machine to designate a contact point in Brooklyn. And the electricity did not go down until I think a little after four o'clock that day downtown. So most people were able to get the message. But I was worried the whole time that these children are going to be orphans because the reason they're in our school is because their parents worked in the trade center or the environs. Well, did it turn out a number of them did become orphans? or Not one. Not one? Not one. I was really surprised by that. Grateful, of course. And every child was reunited with parents, their parents, by 9 o'clock that night. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Then? The city sent uh, buses downtown to evacuate us all from the area. Um, some folks took the Staten Island Ferry to Staten Island, and I decided not to do that because I knew I'd get stuck over there because I wouldn't be able to get back. And I took a bus to Uptown and was able to walk home from there late that afternoon. Um, I got home and uh, was reunited with my family. It was a very tearful reunion because they hadn't heard from me all day and had no idea that I was even alive, you know. And... All that afternoon, that evening, I scoured the internet. The internet was working, of course, um, and the news broadcast, trying to find any shred of evidence that St. Paul's had survived and what the scope of this cataclysm was. Um, saw nothing on the news. I just assumed, and you know, I still have emails that I sent out to folks, assuming that St. Paul's had been demolished right across the street. How could how could it survive? Um, the next morning, 9.12, I got out of bed and walked downtown, um, had my clergy collar on, my Trinity ID, and, uh, and a bag of water bottles to hand out to workers. And I had two missions. I was going downtown to help out uh, at the site to see what I could do, if there was anything I could do to help with any rescue. And uh, secondly, I kind of felt a debt to history. Hanging in St. Paul's Chapel is one of the earliest renditions of the seal of the United States in oil. It's actually Ben Franklin's idea of the national bird, which is, of course, the turkey. And this is a priceless painting that hangs in there, and I assumed it would just be sitting in the rubble at St. Paul's. So I'm walking down. Uh, I have to go through these checkpoints, these Humvees with guns drawn. It was really scary. It was a, it was a military zone, you know. Finally, I was able to get beyond the red zone, the checkpoints into the red zone. I'm walking down. I got just about to where City Hall is, and I saw the spire of St. Paul standing proud, and I just burst into tears. I could not believe it. How could it have survived? 1766, and all these modern buildings all around it destroyed. As I thought about that in the months to come, I thought about it in this way, because there was so much talk about the miracle of St. Paul's, but I always wanted to try to make clear that if St. Paul's was spared for a reason, it was not the case that we are holier than anybody who died across the street. 
But if there was a reason, it was because we had a big job to do. And being that close to the disaster site, having that kind of facility, it was very clear that we had a big job to do and a mission to fulfill. I walked into St. Paul's Chapel for the first time. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. It was as if sparks were flying off my boots. The place was covered in soot about, uh, you know, maybe a quarter inch, half inch thick. It had been locked up all this time, right? Well, it had been locked up, uh, but uh, I had a men's shelter at St. Paul's Chapel, a very active men's shelter. They sleep in the gallery at mm-hmm. night. And so one of the windows was open for ventilation. You know, it was still warm, so just a nice flow of air. Mm-hmm. And that's where the soot came in. Might also be one of the things that helped save it to have, you know, so it didn't no pre- compress. No pre- pressure from them. So you're the first human to walk into St. Paul's day after. There's soot like a snowfall on the floor. I walk into St. Paul's and I was deeply moved. It was eerie. Um, there was an energy in that old church. It wasn't the energy of something dying something struggling to come to life. And that's my interpretation, of course, but that's exactly how I felt when I went in. I saw the seal of the United States standing uh, on the wall where it had always been. Uh, There was Washington's box pew. There was the seal of New York. Everything was intact. You walk in, you see this. How does the ministry of St. Paul's evolve from that first feeling of yours? When I first walked into St. Paul's and and walked through the place, I didn't stay in there very long. (laughs) It was kind of scary. So I came back out, and as soon as I came back out on the Broadway uh, entrance, a firefighter uh, came up to me, and he had been working, obviously, for 24 hours straight. And he wanted to come in. He was covered in dust, covered in mud. Uh, The look on his face was... Oh, just so forlorn. And he asked me if he could come inside and sleep so that he could go from sleep for a little while and go back to work. And I said, no. I said, no, because I didn't know if the building wouldn't collapse. Mm-hmm. And that was the big dilemma in the early days of the ministry at St. Paul's Chapel after 9-11 is, is the structure sound. And um, we received a lot of pressure to open up St. Paul sooner than I felt we could because I wanted to make sure uh, to get a structural engineer to come check it out to make sure we were okay before we opened it up and have people in and the building collapse on them. God forbid something like that happened. Remember, uh, there's, um, I think it's Liberty Plaza, the building there collapsed was, later. Well, the, that was Building Seven. Yeah. It collapsed later in the day, but uh, for for weeks and weeks uh, after nine eleven, there's this massive uh, building at Liberty Plaza um, that was said to be about to collapse, and we would hear horns and sirens blow several times a day, and that meant if we were within a six block radius, we had to run. St. Paul's Chapel is two blocks away. So, you know, that was also a a very deep concern. We got someone to check it out, uh, and so we opened it up. But the early days were really quite interesting. We um, set up a food concession on Broadway. 
uh, we were serving hamburgers and hot dogs and cold drinks. All right, now who's who's helping you there? Your priest in charge. You don't really have a vestry, do you? Right. I mean, you don't. Really, you've got a small a small real congregation mm-hmm. nucleus. Uh, yeah. On the rolls. Yeah. So how do how do you organize all of this? Well, I didn't say it was organized, but... <laughs> all right, how did yeah. all this occur? <laughs> yeah, it okay. emerged. Emer- okay, that's a yeah. good word. Well, uh, it, it was highly organized within a few weeks, but at first it was, you know, just responding, reacting. And Siemens Church Institute and uh, some local people in the neighborhood stepped up to the plate and they became champions. It was really incredible to get to know these people. Um, there was a group of guys who had a big red truck and ran supplies for us every day. We put a huge yellow cross on the hood of the truck so the police would know that that's our truck, and the police worked with us. We were able to get supplies in regularly throughout the day and the night. And it's just being cooked, you've been cooking outside because, again, you don't have a parish house. You don't have any exactly. kind of facilities. Yeah, and, and if I had you know, the kitchen inside St. Paul's, I didn't use it because I didn't know if the building would stand. Mm-hmm. So we set up barbecue grills on uh, Broadway, and uh, we refer to it affectionately as barbecue on Broadway. You won't be surprised if you see the picture of that, that um, the health department was uh, concerned. (laughs) All the stuff in the air, and, you know, we didn't know where some of the food was coming from. It was risky, of course. So they shut us down twice a day. Finally, I talked to the police captain whose command post was nearby, and told him, look, we need some help. And uh, he said, well, when they come back, let me know. They came back. I actually was not there at that minute, but the priest who was overseeing the operation at that time, Fred Burnham, went and got the police officer, uh, police captain. He brought about 10 of his biggest guys. They encircled the health department contingent and marched them off the premises. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Was that the last time you heard from the health department? No, it wasn't. But <laughs> the next morning, uh, one of the police officers had a big smile, and he said, well, the last time I checked, the health department doesn't carry guns, and we do. But they had a legitimate complaint. And, uh, you know, I did a presentation for a group of the folks from the health department a few years back, and I entitled it, I Fought the Health Department and the Health Department Won. (laughs) They had some real concerns. So we ultimately got shut down, and um, I got some help, some some real kitchen help with someone who had a license, uh, Martin Cowart. He had his own restaurant, and uh, he came on to the staff and set it up inside of St. Paul's Chapel. Uh, the the day that we got shut down outside, we opened up inside. Well, now, how do you do this? Are you taking the pews out? No. Everything happens right there with the pews. We're, uh, we've, uh, first of all, uh, moved the food service onto the, the portico on the Broadway side of St. Paul's Chapel. So it was like, you know... Down home, you know, folks come over, you sit out on the porch in the evening, and, mm-hmm. and we had fried chicken on Sunday nights, so why not? I felt that there was not uh, really anything we could do that was good enough to show these men and women our love and our respect and our gratitude for the work that they were doing, because I went through that site almost, well, daily. And I saw, and I smelled, and I witnessed, I experienced the trauma that they lived, you know. 14, 16 hours a day, and uh, doing last rites on body bags, body parts. You, and, you were doing that, too. Yeah. What, what about counseling the, the, the firemen and the rescue workers and the police involved? 
As the ministry uh, developed at St. Paul's Chapel, we did uh, bring some clergy on board to do regular shifts around the clock, and we had grief counselors uh, available. And, you know, lots of times uh, people would just come in and burst into tears because it was so traumatic. And walking through the site, I heard everything from the latest joke to my wife just left me. You know, it was just so intense, so intense. Um, but we, we discovered a lot about who we are as a people and who the first responder community is. Um, you know, we found out that we could be more than we ever could have imagined, more courageous, more generous, more helpful. Well, I was in New York about two weeks after 9-11. Okay. Because at, at that time, I was working with uh, William Morrow, HarperCollins, on my book, okay. on the Re- book on the Revolution. Oh, terrific. But yeah. I took the subway down yeah. Yeah. and walked to the site. Uh-huh. There wasn't, you know, they didn't keep you that, you know, I, I stood across the street from yeah. the site. But from the time you got off the subway, you mm-hmm. could still smell. Oh. The smell just it, it followed you uptown. Of course. It was all over. Yeah. yeah. It was all over. One of the most popular um, uh, items that we gave away at St. Paul's Chapel was mentholatum. I put it up your nose. Good old Southern, where you don't. So you don't smell the decaying bodies. The ministry didn't stop after one week, two weeks. We had no idea how long it would go. Uh, Certainly had no idea it would last as long as it did. Uh, So every day we were in it trying to think, you know, the next meal really was what we were concerned about. Who's paying for all this? Wow, that's a great question. Well, you know, the the American people did, and people from around the world, and the New York Times, and and others. Um, the outpouring of love and generosity was extraordinary, extraordinary. Again, you're a one man show. How is all this being handled? I mean, I you know, I really was never really the one man show. It was a team of folks who made this happen, and um, I was just privileged to be a part of it. We had a good crew of people at, at Trinity who were helping uh, do the financials and manage the books and deposit the checks and over, you know, we had a good team of people to help organize uh, volunteers. Um, uh, before long, I had a staff at St. Paul's Chapel of eight people uh, working, you know, 12, 14 hour days uh, as I did myself, sometimes more. Um, we had a, a nun who w- was in the beginning part of her vows uh, at St. Margaret's house, Sister Grace. Yeah, this is an Episcopal. Mm-hmm, Episcopal uh, nun, yeah. Yes. She came in, and uh, one of the police officers, who was a, a sergeant actually, mm-hmm. took off the stripes off of his uh, shirt and pinned them on her habit. So <laughs> she became Sergeant Grace. She ruled with an iron <laughs> fist, let me tell you. She was good. Yeah. And, and so how, how long did this mission continue? It continued for eight and a half months. It continued for eight and a half months. Um, We had over 5,000 volunteers, the largest uh, of which uh, came from B'nai Jeshurun Synagogue in uh, Manhattan. Uh, We had massage therapists. We had chiropractors. We had grief counselors. We had podiatrists uh, working 24-7. And, you know, when the podiatrist asked where they they should set up their shop, so to speak, 
we thought, well, given the Valley Forge campaign, where else would we put him but Washington's box pew? (laughs) (laughs) I think he would have been happy. They certainly took great pride in working there. Remember, this was the longest burning fire in our country's history. Mm -hmm. Literally, the boots were melting off the feet of the men and women working in the site. So did you get any grief from folks because you have this historic structure and you've all of a sudden turned it into a disaster center? Did you get some criticism? Well, yeah, there there was some of that. There was a lot of concern. There was a lot of concern, a lot of legitimate concern. Um, But, you know, we had a mission, and it was clear what we needed to do. So we did it. Mm -hmm. And I'm proud of what we did, quite frankly. And... uh, and happy of, of with, with what we were able to accomplish. We had musicians working around the clock doing three and four concerts. Um, one of the most beautiful expressions of gratitude came from a construction worker named Tom Garrity. The last day we were open, he gave us a paraphrase of uh, Matthew chapter 25 from uh, the New Testament. And Jesus is uh, making a proclamation uh, saying that, um, when you did it unto the least of these, you did it unto me. In other words, when you feed the hungry, when you help heal the sick, when you restore sight to the blind, when you give a cup of cold water you, to someone, it's as good as if you're doing it to me. And Tom uh, asked to say a few words the last day we were open, and he said, well, I really didn't want to come to Ground Zero because my sister-in-law was killed. And I cursed God, and I had no use for God. And I certainly didn't want to come to Ground Zero. But as a construction worker in this area, you can't escape it. So I came downtown, little by little. I came into St. Paul's to get some food. And little by little, my heart opened back up. And this place has been such a miracle in my life. And that meant I knew everything we had done was worth that one moment. Because he said that, When I was hungry, you were a little cafe on Broadway. When I was distressed, you were a therapist's couch. And when I needed inspiration, you were a concert hall and an art gallery because we had children's letters posted all over the place. We had thousands and thousands and thousands of letters from children all over the world. I walked in one morning, and uh, someone had started taping them to the walls, and I hit the roof. I said, what are you doing? We had just spent $300,000 repainting St. Paul's Chapel. And then it occurred to me, plaster the place. This is beautiful. This is what we need. And it was so inspiring. Did you get bashed with that? Well, yeah. Well, there was there was always some pushback, uh, you know, because Trinity is a powerful church and with a lot of concerns, rightly so. Uh, but working together, we were able to accomplish miracles, I think, through the power of God. To What happened there, um, Walter, in my opinion, was nothing short of a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Because we had people from all walks of life, from all faith traditions, all communities, working together. It was a place where uh, it was almost like a reversal of life. We had, you know, corporate CEOs working and thrilled to serve coffee to sanitation workers and federal judges ecstatic about serving a sandwich to a police officer and, and, and vice versa. And, you know, it was really extraordinary, just amazing. And, and during the course of this 
almost nine months ministry, or mission, whatever you want to call it. What mm-hmm. would you call it? Ministry? Mission? Yeah, both. I mean, we were asked, you know, when are, when are you going to be a church again, Lyndon? I was asked that question. Said, and what did you say? I said, we've never been more of a church. Come on. This is what it's about. It's responding to the needs of your community and being Jesus to them when they need us. Did you ever, were you holding regular Sundays? What about the, the Monday night jazz? Did that? That did not continue, but we had a communion service every day at noon. So while people are getting worked on, getting, you know, uh, adjustments by a chiropractor and massages and, and people are opening sandwiches, you can hear the cellophane and people are snoring and, you know, all that's happening. But at 12 noon, we had the Eucharist and no one was coerced into participating. They wanted to be a part of it. Please. Mm-hmm. But if not, that's cool, too. Mm-hmm. We offer this to remind us who we are and why we do what we're doing, mm-hmm. and to receive uh, you know, empowerment from it. And I'll never forget one day. And this was really uh, a story that kind of set me on uh, my journey, uh, the one I'm on now. We had a, a guy there, his name is Michael Lapsley. He was one of the first white priests to stand against the apartheid government in South Africa. And they sent him a mail bomb to thank him for that, which when he opened it, blew off both of his arms and took out one of his eyes. And now Michael travels around with a a prosthetic device attached to his torso, and he has hooks for hands, you know. Mm -hmm. And that day, standing with him at the altar as he elevated the host with those hooks and broke the host, I still get chills thinking about that. But why that? one of the reasons that was so empowering for me and so challenging for me is that his sermon that day was all about moving from being a victim to living victoriously through the power of forgiveness. As I found out later, that'll preach. We've got to pause for just a moment to let folks know you're listening to Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking to the Reverend Lyndon Harris, who is priest in charge of St. Paul's Chapel in New York City, right across from Ground Zero on 9-11. Lyndon, some of the art that came out of that, mm-hmm. that mission, mm-hmm. There was a, a chalice, which I think is absolutely in, incredible. Well, uh, we had a college student working with us, Jessica Stammen. She was an art major at Cooper Union College, uh, superlative in every imaginable way, uh, a gifted young woman. Um, and I said, will you work with us and help us interpret this experience? And uh, I don't know what that means, but maybe you will. And so she and some of her colleagues at Cooper Union had a banner-making party. I'd ask her if she could do some banners for the fence because we're right there. We need visual signs of love and encouragement and support. So they did a series of banners, uh, which uh, Jessica has loaned to me now, and many of those are on display at the museum exhibit in Gaffney. Uh, the Cherokee uh, County Area Arts and Preservation Society. And we also were able to get a chunk of steel from the World Trade Center site through the mayor's office. And uh, so I got this steel to her, and uh, the benefactor for this is Massimo Ferragamo. And so she was able to get this steel and to have a little bit of money to work with it. And 
I asked her to do a memorial chalice, a World Trade Center memorial chalice made out of the steel. And I thought she would come back with some nice ornate chalice with, you know, images of the cityscape and maybe uh, flowers in the form of the World Trade Center. I don't know. Well, she came back with a striking piece of art. The base of the chalice is a root system of a tree representing, uh, we haven't talked about this yet, but the sycamore tree at the edge of the cemetery at St. Paul's Chapel was uprooted. It took the brunt of the impact on 9-11. And, uh, and that root system is represented in the base of the chalice. The stem of the chalice is twofold. It's the two towers. So, and then the bowl of the chalice, which is astonishing, is her hands holding a bowl. So the, the, uh, the idea is that these are the hands of God holding this precious life and caring and overseeing and protecting. Now, where is the chalice now? She minted seven chalices. So there's one at St. Paul's Chapel in New York City. Uh, there's one in Italy. There, there, there are a few strategic places. And now there's one at the, uh, at the museum in Gaffney, and it's on display. Okay. Stunning. And also, there's a picture of you. You're wearing your chasuble, which you wear when you, when you preside mm-hmm. uh, at, at the altar for mm-hmm. Eucharist. And on it are all sorts of patches. Mm-hmm. These are the men and women represent the, their units that they were involved in. Yes. The red chasuble was a gift to us from a Roman Catholic priest who was volunteering. Uh, his mother had given that to him on the occasion of his ordination to the priesthood, and he wanted to share it with us. So this red chasuble was just hanging there. I didn't know what to do with it, but I wanted to display it. I mean, it's a precious gift. And it just happened to be just a few feet away from Sister Grace's patch blanket. She really liked patches, and she wanted everyone represented. So she had this blue blanket with patches all over it. And somehow in the dark of night, uh, I came in the next morning and found out that the patches had been transferred to the chasuble. And they're not really stitched on, they're just pinned on. But those patches represent the lifeblood and the mission and the work of the men and women who worked in Ground Zero, in the pile, later in the pit, to find the remains of the dead. Let's explain for folks who don't mm-hmm. know about liturgical colors. Mm-hmm. Red is not a symbol of sorrow. Right. It's a symbol of passion, in a way. And uh, the first time I wore the chasuble at Eucharist was the Feast of St. Andrew, which is Red Letter Day. Mm-hmm. And with the patches from all the fire departments, police departments, and sanitation departments, and anyone else who offered us a patch, uh, with all that on the chasuble, as I presided at the Eucharist that day, you could have heard a pen drop in the building. Usually it's so noisy you can barely hear what's going on. So much was happening. But that day, there was a, it was a sacred moment of solidarity between their work and the work of St. Paul's Chapel. Where is the chasuble now? It's uh, at St. Paul's Chapel. Chapel. Yep, it's on display. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nine-month ministry. We're now into 2002. How does London Harris get back to South Carolina? You, you've, got a, you've got a new, I don't want to say a vocation because it's mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. the same, but you're, mm-hmm. you're in a different world now. You're not wearing a collar now, are mm-hmm. you? I'm still a priest, okay. uh, but now I'm the executive director of the Gardens of Forgiveness. Um, 
my own uh, journey after St. Paul's Chapel was one of uh, great challenge and difficulty and pain. Uh, I found out that I have stuff in my lungs that will compromise my health uh, long term. Uh, I was dealing with PTSD, and if you're working downtown, how could you not? Um, lots of life issues, uh, wrestled through a divorce and financial struggles, and I was very bitter. I was very, very, very bitter. And I was going nowhere. I was paralyzed. I was stagnant. And if I moved at all, it was not to a better place. It was to a worse place. And, um, and I had a friend who challenged me, and he said, Lyndon, you've got to forgive. And I said, Rod... You've got to be kidding me. I hung up the phone on him. I was so angry. And then I called him back and I said, but Rod, I hate you, but you're right. <laughs> As a Christian priest, every time I say the Lord's Prayer, I have to forgive. It's the center, one of the center pieces of the Lord's Prayer. And uh, then I heard the Mandela quotation. Nelson Mandela said that not to forgive is like drinking a glass of poison and waiting for your enemies to die. I drank a lot of that poison, and I felt justified in drinking it because I wasn't treated so well in some parts of my life. And it tasted good, but it was still poison, and it was killing me. And then I figured out that Jesus really had something to say that I needed to hear. And, uh, and the forgiveness piece has become my life's mission now. And it's larger than the Episcopal Church. I work with a lot of different communities of many faith traditions. We're, uh, the first Garden of Forgiveness is in Beirut, Lebanon. We took 9-11 family members there in 2005 uh, to plant an olive tree for peace in honor of their lost loved ones. Uh, that, incidentally, is uh, uh, featured in the documentary that South Carolina ETV helped sponsor. It's called The Power of Forgiveness. So kudos to you guys for your visionary support of a theme that's not so popular. You'd be surprised how unpopular forgiveness is. It's all good, but when it comes down to my mother-in-law or that person who cut me off in traffic this morning, forget about it. Okay, so... <laughs> We have, do we have a Garden of Forgiveness here in South Carolina? You have one in Charleston. Mayor Riley invited me down uh, during the Martin Luther King weekend uh, two years ago, and we dedicated a garden in Charleston. Yes, I'm drawing a blank. I don't know my geography so well, but it's downtown. It's a full city park. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, and um, it's quite beautiful and just such an opportunity to interact with the community. Our idea is that... Gardens of Forgiveness uh, provide places for people to sit and think about the, the bad things that can happen to us as individuals, but then make the decision to make the world a better place by choosing to opt out of that cycle of violence and revenge. Um, our bumper sticker uh, on forgiveness is that forgiveness means giving up all hope of a better past. <laughs> How many times have we tried to rewrite the... I, you know, I have. I've been there, done that, still paying for the T-shirt, but... Uh, um, so we just want to put forgiveness on the menu for people to consider. And I think, you know, it's a trainable life skill that helps us in our lives to be more resilient, more hopeful, more courageous, more optimistic. The co-chair of our campaign is Frederick Luskin. He's a professor at Stanford University. He wrote a book called Forgive for Good. It's a fabulous book. I recommend it. Okay. And where are you headquartered? 
We are headquartered uh, all over. Uh, I'm getting ready to move to Los Angeles, actually, and going to anchor the sort of the headquarters of our movement there. But we're all over the place. You working. couldn't do that in South Carolina? Yes, of course. I mean, I'll be you here. Can't, you can't get sweet tea in that. Well, maybe you can in some sections of L.A. Right, right. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, uh, there's uh, there are a few opportunities there to empower this work that I'm going to explore. And who knows? Who knows? But we're working in Rwanda and Kigali uh, after the genocide there. Uh, they really are teaching the world what it means to embrace the future through forgiveness. What about South Africa, where your clergy friend came from? Yeah. Uh, I spoke at a conference in Durban in 2006 about the Gardens of Forgiveness. And you know what? They have so much to teach us about forgiveness because it's a part of the lifeblood there. Bishop Tutu's work, Ubuntu, you know. It doesn't translate into English. The, the, the definition, the closest we can get to Ubuntu is, I am because you are. We're all so deeply interrelated, so we have to find a way to, to move through uh, forgiveness to embrace a new future. Truth and reconciliation, the middle piece of that is forgiveness. Okay. Well, how large is your organization? I mean, I've, you know, it's more than you, is that... Well, it, it is, yes. We have a lot of partners working with us, uh, but it is fledgling. Uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's a, definitely a garden-type organization from the roots, you know, okay. bottom-up, not top-down. We don't franchise gardens. We uh, prefer to offer the ideas and uh, invite communities to participate in that. Uh, we have resources developing more and redeveloping our website. Okay. We had a big event on the anniversary of 9-11 this year in New York City at NYU. Pete Seeger is going to be with us another time. The man who taught Martin Luther King the song, We Shall Overcome, which, is going to be which, with us. Which, of course, you, you can remind him that that came from coastal South Carolina. Yes. That's, that's where it originated. That's right. That's right. So. Absolutely. And we have some other uh, folks who are going to be along for the event. And our theme this year is Love Wins. As I travel around, I, you know, I, I often will say, I'll start my talk by saying that 9-11 happened. It was covered by every media outlet in the world. But the equally important day is 9-12, when we got out of bed and responded to those acts of violence with hearts of courage and compassion and love. And 9-12, I think, is the message to hold up. You're moving from tragedy to transformation. Um, the definition of a tragedy is something that can't be fixed. You know, you can't unring a bell. You can't turn back the hands of a clock. But even though it can't be fixed, it can be healed. And we can find a way to move forward that honors those who died, uh, but also empowers us to live. And that's what our message is all about. I was uh, working at Canuga a couple summers ago. I was there for a conference. For folks who don't know yeah. that, that is an Episcopal Conference Center in Western yeah. North Carolina, and which we hate to keep letting things back to South Carolina, but— this Kirk, is where it's all happening. Kirk, Kirkman Finley, who was mm -hmm. the first bishop of the diocese of Upper mm -hmm. South Carolina, it was his baby, his brainchild. And then he got the other yeah. diocese within the southeast to, to mm -hmm. buy into Canuga. Beautiful, brilliant place for spiritual retreat and mm -hmm. conferences. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was there looking at a garden that they have and consulting uh, and talking, dreaming anyway. Not anything too official or formal, but dreaming about a garden of forgiveness at Canuga. But it was very small, and I was thinking as I was sitting in that garden praying, thinking about it. Well, 
With regard to signage, we put a lot of sign. We try to put some signs up to inspire people in the work of forgiveness to help people see that it's really good for us to forgive. And I thought, well, what would I put in this place? What could we put in this place? And I thought, well, you know, it kind of comes down to this from that uh, passage in the book of Numbers. And God says, I set before you this day life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life. Well, that's mm. forgiveness. Well, I hate to do it, but Alfred's giving giving us the wind-up signal. Any last words you'd like to pass on to our listeners before we sign off today? I'd just like to say thanks for having me here on the show. I'm honored and uh, happy to be home. It's really good to be here. Okay. Well, the Reverend Lyndon Harris, Gaffney native, the priest in charge of St. Paul's Chapel at Ground Zero, New York City. Thanks for being with us today to talk not really about 9-11, but 9-12. Oh, thank you. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore from September 2011. Our guest was Lyndon Harris, who was priest in charge of St. Paul's Chapel on Wall Street in New York City on September the 11th, 2001. Today, Lyndon Harris is executive director of the Gardens of Forgiveness. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.